In May of 1940, on the uh, north northern coast of France, 380,000 Allied troops were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk. At this time in World War II, Nazi Germany had the clear upper hand. They had swept through Europe, and nobody could stop them. uh, The Luftwaffe, the Air Force, was unstoppable, uh, and even their uh, naval fleets were strident. It looked like Hitler was going to take England and take over all of Europe. And could you imagine what would happen if that were the case? Uh, There may very well still be a swastika hanging over the government buildings here in Norway and in England, and Europe could be completely different. The bulk of the Allied forces are trapped on the beaches with no means of escape. So in May of 1940, King George calls for a national day of prayer to plead for divine intervention. And a few days later, on May 28th, fog and cloud rolls in and the seas calm. And the mass evacuation of these troops begins. The German Luftwaffe couldn't do anything because they couldn't see anything because of the fog and the cloud. And the calm seas allowed hundreds and thousands of civilian boats to cross the English Channel and rescue these troops. And then the fog lifted and the Allies were saved. 40,000 were captured, but 340,000 escaped and lived to fight another day. And really what we see here from the biblical perspective is that God's hidden hand of providence, we couldn't see God, but his hidden hand of providence ruling over nature and over history rescued the allied soldiers and turned the tide of the war. It was God's hidden hand of providence that changed everything in history uh, in a way that we still feel the effects today. It's the same principle that's at the heart of Esther. God's hidden hand of providence is working to deliver God's people during the Persian Empire. I've entitled this, uh, this sermon today, Celebrate Your Deliverance. Celebrate Your Deliverance. And I will explain why by, go ahead and turn to page 7 of your worship folder here in the summary. I've written here as far as a melodic line or overview of the text. The book of Esther reveals the backstory for the Feast of Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the Jews from an annihilation plot during the days of the Persian Empire. 
The heroes of the story are Esther, a Jewish captive turned Persian queen, and Mordecai, her guardian and cousin. But standing sovereignly behind these heroes is God. While God is not expressly mentioned in the book, a closer look shows that God's hand of providence is behind this grand reversal of conditions. As Mordecai implores Esther to save the Jews, he tells her, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God providentially used Esther and Mordecai to save his people from certain extinction. In a greater way, Esther foreshadows the ultimate reversal which God has bestowed on his church in Christ, who forever reversed the conditions of our estate from slavery to freedom and from death to life. While the Jews celebrate temporal deliverance with the Feast of Purim, we celebrate eternal salvation by proclaiming the excellencies of our God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. So this whole book is uh, setting the backstory for the Feast of Purim that the Jews were continuing to celebrate at the time that the book of Esther was written. But as we'll see today, this is merely a foreshadow of the greater deliverance that we have in Christ. Uh, Esther has a very neat uh, structure to it. I want to show you that. Uh, Look at the literary structure here again on page 7 of your worship folder. That this celebration of reverse conditions or deliverance is highlighted in the exposition or the setting, uh, as I have it listed in the brief outline, the main body and the resolution, but also the book's chiastic structure and the stated function of Purim in chapter 9.22 also reinforce this theme. So if you look at the brief literary outline, you see it is a, it's a chiasm, it's an envelope structure. The, the whole book incrementally builds to a climax and then it mirrors it going back the other way. And you can see that A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then G prime going all the way back to A prime. If you look at the structure of the book, there are mirror events that happen all along the way. And I'll point that out uh, as, we, uh, as we go through the text today. But it's a very... Uh, a very cool structure. Hebrews, the Hebrews love to use chiasms. So you see, chias- not always whole books, but sections where it'll be this kind of A, B, C, B prime, A prime, or some other structure where it does this kind of envelope or triangle kind of thing. And the emphasis is in, is in the middle. The emphasis is found in, in the middle in comparing how these parts work with each other. The way we're going to look at Esther today is I'm going to walk you through the book um, in a brief overview, and then I'm going to show you some principles that we can glean from the New Testament in light of Esther. So I asked, I asked Deborah last week, is it better if I give three points or four points or to, to walk through the book? She's like, I, I think you should walk through the book. Otherwise, I feel like I don't have a grasp of the whole. So we're going to go back to what I, I had been doing. I'm going to walk us through at the book as a whole, and then we'll find some points to take home and apply to our situation. So let's dive into the book of Esther. I'd encourage you to have Esther open, and you can thumb through it as we 
as we work, uh, work through it together. So Esther opens up with King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is one of the Persian kings. This is after the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ahasuerus is actually mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah, but mentioned in terms of future persecution that's going to come later down the road. So now Esther is devoted to this period of time of uh, Ahasuerus, who's also known as Xerxes, if you've ever heard that name, Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, who reigned from 464 to 423 B.C. 464 to 423 B.C. And uh, so King Xerxes wants to throw a feast to celebrate his glory and his might. And at the heart of all of his treasures uh, is Queen Vashti, is his queen. He wants to parade her about for her beauty. But Queen Vashti refuses to come. One of the many ironies, and I won't have time to point out all of them today in Esther, is, is these, these subtle like turnings where like the king is all powerful and yet the woman, a woman overturns him. We're going to see that both with Vashti as well as Esther, where, where the plans of men are thwarted by the schemes of women. Or schemes, maybe that's the wrong, but the plans of women. Uh, and so in all of his glory and might, <laughs> and all of all uh, and note that the woman is the heroine of this story okay so um okay you've thrown me off my my uh, my track here um anyway so vashti refuses and the king is furious and he swears that vashti will never come into my presence again now let's take a moment to get the context here um this is not your normal marriage situation where like, you have a husband and one wife. Uh, the king had a harem, had a huge host of women. Okay? It's more like a business than, than a marriage. And the kings would amass all sorts of women from different parts and different provinces of the empire to secure uh, his authority and reign over the, the whole empire. Okay, and so he swears, Vashti, you will never come into my presence again. And so after some days, the king makes a search for a new queen. And he sends his men out and they gather beautiful women from the provinces and specifically here mentioned is Susa. And Esther is one of those people who's taken. So Think about this. Esther had no will in this, in this event. She was simply taken because of her beauty. And the emperor could do that in these days. So think about this. Not only was Esther uh, a captive from Judea, who was not in Persia because she wanted to be there, but now also... She is taken against her will into the king's harem. And that's her estate. And it looks very bleak. But in the midst of this, in the midst of all of this, the king 
chooses Esther. The king chooses Esther to be Vashti's replacement. And so Esther is brought before the king and is made the queen. So all of a sudden, here's one of these great turns of events, these reversals of conditions that we will see in this book, where a Jewish captive woman becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. It's completely unthinkable. And the Lord is going to use her, as we will see in this book, for his great purposes. In the midst of this opening setting, where we're getting to know all the characters that will be mentioned in the book, Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, but also guardian, so Esther's parents died, we're not told how, uh, Mordecai must be a lot older than Esther because he becomes like her father, but he's, uh, he's her cousin. And Mordecai overhears a report from some assassins who are plotting to kill the king. And Mordecai shares this news with Esther who reports it to the king and the assassins are taken and executed and the king is spared. After that, the last thing we see in the setting of the book is a man named Haman who's going to arise uh, to power and who's going to plot to kill the Jews. So in chapter 3, we read that Haman is promoted to chief officer of the Persian Empire. So he's like the second in command. He's like the vice president. He's the second in command. And uh, he rises to this, this seat of great power. And as he passes by one day, he passes by Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow to him. And it ticks Haman off. Because everyone else is is bowing and simping to Haman. And Haman asks, who is this guy? And he finds out that he's Mordecai the Jew. He's Mordecai the Jew. Now, there's something going on behind the scenes that we need to understand here. Uh, Haman is not called an Amalekite in Esther, but he is called a descendant of Agag. And Agag is a descendant of the Amalekite king against whom Saul fought. Or, excuse me, Agag is the Amalekite king against whom Saul fought in 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekites are the ancient bitter enemies of the Jews. The Amalekites were a nomadic raiding people uh, in the deserts, and they persecuted the Israelites as they were fleeing from Egypt along the way. So during the Exodus, the Amalekites are assaulting the Israelites. And then later in the days of Joshua, the Amalekites come out um, in war against the Israelites but they are defeated by Joshua. But the Amalekites are this enemy of God's people that, that surface again and again. Uh, and in, in the Torah, in the first five books, Deuteronomy, Exodus specifically, Israel's charged with blotting out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So they're like the, the before Babylon becomes the, like the, the typisk, like enemy of God's people, as it will be, uh, in the early days, it was the Amalekites. They were the enemy 
number one of God's people. And so here in Esther, implied, and this requires the reader to read with discernment, we have a Jew refusing to bow to his enemy, the Amalekite. And the Amalekite, who's ticked off by it, and who seeks not only to kill Mordecai, but all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so Haman will go on to cast lots, which is this word pur, which we get Purim from, the Feast of Purim. Haman casts lots to seek divine guidance and approval for what he's about to do. And then Haman exchanges money, 10,000 talents, with the king to gain the king's favor. So he's wheeling and dealing in the spiritual realm and in the political realm so that he can annihilate the Jews and the king's The king gives him permission, and the king's edict goes out to all the provinces, we're told in chapter 3, to annihilate the Jews and plunder their goods one year from today. So that edict goes out one year from now, let the Jews be annihilated and all of their goods be plundered. And the Jews look like they are in for extinction. So that's the setting of the book. We have Esther, who becomes a Persian queen. Mordecai, who saves the king from an assassin's plot. And now Haman's plot to kill the Jews. So now we're going to see what happens. Does Haman succeed? And we come into the main body of the book, the development section of the book. And here we see Mordecai in chapter 4 imploring Esther to intercede on behalf of the Jews. So Mordecai hears of this plot and, and the edict becomes well known and he implores Esther to act. And what we see here with Esther is one of several times where she, uh, unasked for, goes before the presence of the king. And we are told in the text that that's a, sen- that's a death sentence. If you try to go before the king without being called, you will be executed unless he holds out, perchance, his golden scepter. And so Esther risks her life to save the Jews and makes uh, an appeal to the king to have a banquet. So she doesn't go right out and say what she's doing. She makes an appeal to host a banquet. And so in chapter 5, she hosts that banquet. But one thing I want to point out before we get to chapter 5, probably the most, if if you remember any words or verses from Esther, it's probably these. When Mordecai, encourages Esther to take take the risk and uh, go before the king. He tells her in verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And verse 14 here is one of those great indicators of God's hidden hand of providence. 
Look at Mordecai's faith here. He says, if you fail to do it, salvation will come for the Jews from somewhere. He still trusts that God will deliver his people. But he says to her, who knows whether or not for you, you have come to the kingdom. You've been made queen of Persia for such a time as this. That God has orchestrated this point in time in history to use Esther of all people to save the Jews. And so she goes about her plan. And in chapter 5, she hosts a feast to, for the king and for Haman. Those are the two people she asks for specifically, for the king and for Haman. And so Haman is thinking, wow, I'm going to be uh, honored yet again at the king's feast. After this feast, we are told at the end of chapter 5 that uh, Haman is going to execute Mordecai. And he built a gallows for Mordecai, 50 cubits tall, which is 70 feet high or 22 meters. That's a tall pole. I mentioned this last week, too, that when we talk about hanging in gallows, it's not what we think about with a rope and a noose. It's a tall pole and impalement. So, like, for example, the Greek historian Herodotus testifies to the Persians using impalement as their execution method of choice. Okay, so Mordecai, the Jew, who would not bow to Amalek, is destined to be hung on that 22-meter pole and to suffer a excruciating death. We read in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 9, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotion with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So we come then in chapter 6 to the second day of the feast. But in the midst of that night, going into the second day, Mordecai, or sorry, uh, the king cannot sleep. And he's, he's somehow reminded of nothing less than the assassination plot made against him. And uh, he asks his officials, then, who was that that told us about the plot? And it's discovered that it was Mordecai. And so the king honors Mordecai. And then at the feast, Haman comes in and 
Esther reveals the truth about Haman. And the king is furious. And the king sentences Haman to death. This section here is the, is the climax of Esther. It's the turning point where what was meant to be given to Mordecai is given to Haman. And what was given to Haman is given to Mordecai. There's a complete reversal and switch that happens here in Esther chapter 6. The climax, the turning point of the chiastic structure. Mordecai is honored and Haman is condemned. And then right after that, if you go back and look at the structure, you see how that Mordecai was supposed to be hung on Haman's gallows, but in the parallel section we see Haman hung on his own gallows. And now this whole turn of events is going to move back to the finishing point. So Haman is impaled on his own gallows for all to see. After that, Esther uh, entreats the king for the salvation of the Jews in chapter 8. Meanwhile, we are told in chapter 8, another reversal of affairs. Mordecai is set over Haman's house and is given Haman's signet ring. So all of a sudden, Mordecai has plundered Haman totally. Haman wanted to annihilate and plunder the Jews. Now Mordecai has plundered and executed, as it were, Haman. He took his place. And then moreover, in chapter 9, the Jews, by the edict of the king, are given not just one day, but two days to destroy their enemies and plunder their goods throughout the Persian Empire. So the complete reverse of Haman's plan occurs. Haman is completely undone. So that brings us then to the resolution in chapters 9 and 10. And we see now the Feast of Purim celebrated for the first time and inaugurated, instituted. And it's all about celebrating Haman's foiled plot. Turn to chapter 9. Not only do we see Purim instituted here, but we again now explicitly see this theme of the reversal of conditions. Uh, This day is instituted, verse 22, as the day on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So now we're given the backstory of Purim. And then we're told after this, Esther and Mordecai report this feast uh, of Purim to all the provinces. And then the book ends with Mordecai becoming chief officer of the Persian Empire. He's called second in command. So we see this top and tail in the book where at the beginning, Esther becomes queen of the Persian Empire. And at the end of the book, Mordecai becomes chief officer of the Persian Empire. They experience the complete opposite from total decimation 
to total ex- as as exalted as you can be in the Persian Empire, being queen and chief officer. The day of sorrow was turned to a day of gladness and deliverance. So that is the overview of Esther. Now let's take a look at it from the perspective of the New Testament. There are two two biblical truths I want to point out, and then two biblical ways to celebrate. So this is what we're going to look at now for the rest of the sermon. Two biblical truths to understand our deliverance, and then two biblical ways to celebrate our deliverance. So let's start with two biblical truths to understand our deliverance. Number one, the invisible hand of God brought about our deliverance as the people of God. The the invisible hand of God brought about our deliverance. I see this in Acts 2.22 to 24, Acts 2, 22 to 24, where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So let's look at this. The invisible hand of God brought about our deliverance. From the human perspective, from the human perspective, Jesus looks like a regular uh, revolutionary in Judea who's crucified on a cross like many other revolutionaries in Judea were crucified by the Roman Empire. I don't know if you know, but there were many messianic revolts during the time of of Jesus, before and after, trying to overthrow the Roman Empire from dominion over Judea. And from the perspective of the, of the historian, the secular historian, it looks like he's just another one of those guys that was executed. But what we are told in Scripture is that behind the scenes, the hidden hand of God was at work for our deliverance. And Peter says as much at Pentecost here next two, he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So lawless hands were executing Christ on the cross. But behind those lawless hands was the hidden hand of God, delivering up his own son, as his definite plan, and according to his foreknowledge. Now we could apply this principle throughout all of history. God still works today through the secondary causes of men and women and powers and nations. But behind all of it is the hidden hand of God. 
But what pertains most importantly to our eternal salvation is that God was there at that moment delivering up his son so that it looked like all hope was lost. Jesus' disciples had scattered. It was a moment of darkness, just like when the king's edict went out to annihilate the Jews. But behind all of it was the hidden hand of God to deliver Jesus up for us and then to raise him on the third day. So that's a biblical truth we need to understand. And it's essential for hope and joy to know that God is at work through all the affairs of our life. And God is at work through all the affairs of nations and empires. Doing his will. We'll see this even more when we get to the book of Daniel. So that's number one, the invisible hand of God brought about our deliverance, our salvation. Number two, the change of our estate is that of dead men made alive and now seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. That's a long point. I'll say it again. Number two, the change of our estate is that of dead men made alive and now seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. I get this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, where Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the change change of our estate is that of dead men made alive and now seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. Paul shows us in Ephesians 2, our true estate. We were dead. We were condemned men. We were on death row, waiting for execution by God Almighty. We were dead. But because of God's rich mercy, he made us alive with Christ. You know that we get to experience two resurrections? I'll clarify what I mean by that. The first is a spiritual resurrection. We're made alive. We're given new life when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. New life. And then we'll also be raised physically on the day that Christ returns. But we're, we were dead You were dead before Christ came into your life. And you were made alive by his mercy. But more than that, and this is something I don't think we think about enough. Not only are you made alive in Christ, but you are seated at the right hand of God, spiritually seated right now in Christ at his right hand. Mordecai 
was elevated to the second place next to the king. We are elevated to the second place next to the king of kings, to God in Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. That's a place of honor and of glory that has been mercifully bestowed on us in Jesus. Talk about a change of estate from dead men, dead men, dead women, dead children, made alive, and not only made alive, but seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. So those are two biblical truths to understand our deliverance. Now I want to end by giving you two biblical ways to celebrate our deliverance. Two biblical ways to celebrate our deliverance. So as you recall, Esther is is all about the Feast of Purim. It's all about celebrating this moment when sorrow was turned to gladness. When they were destined for death, and they were given life. And I, there's two scriptures in the New Testament that come to mind that deal with us being delivered from the domain of darkness. So Esther was captive to the Persian Empire. She was taken into the harem against her will. Mordecai was living in the Persian Empire against his will as they were the descendants of the exiles who were kicked out of the promised land. They, they are not there by choice. They are there by force. They're in the domain of Persia. And what we learn in the New Testament, even as we talk about when we sing, like Psalms 3 and other Psalms like that, spiritually we are in the domain of darkness. We live under the domain of darkness. And before Christ, we belong to the domain of darkness. In fact, our souls were sold to the devil when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. We became the children of the enemy. That's why John, uh, in his epistle, will talk about there's two people. There's children of God and children of the devil. And we were under that domain of darkness until Christ came and delivered us. And there's two places in the New Testament where that is connected to a proper response that we should have. Okay, so these are the two biblical ways to celebrate our deliverance from that domain of darkness. Number one is give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. In Colossians 2, 12 to 13, Paul writes as he's going on about the mercies of God. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here we see that same complete reversal of conditions as we see in Esther. We are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of Christ. And what is the biblical proper response of God's people? It's to give thanks to the Father. We should be known as thankful people. We come on the Lord's Day to give thanks to the Father. 
for delivering us from the domain of darkness. And a last, uh, a last point, second, number two, the second way that we can celebrate our deliverance, number two, proclaim the glories of God to the world. Proclaim the glories of God to the world. First Peter 2, 9 to 10, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here is telling us to proclaim the glories of God to the world. Look what Peter says here in 1 Peter 2. One, he says, you are a chosen race. The church is not a race made up of people from one country or another country. It's made up of a a spiritual people. We are a spiritual race from every tribe and tongue and nation. But not just that, we are chosen. We are chosen by God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. To do what? To be proclaimers, my friends. Proclaimers. Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Here's this idea of the domain of darkness again. Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the business of our days should be that of proclaiming that good news and proclaiming the hope by which others can enter that good news in Christ through faith. So I want to challenge you as you think about Esther and as you think about the reality that we've been delivered from the domain of Satan's clutches into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. How has God called you to proclaim that good news to those around you? To be proclaimers of this marvelous reality and to proclaim the excellencies of God, of him. Peter's very specific to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, one of the reasons I love the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is I see its truth in so many places in Scripture. You know, Paul will say, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. But here we see uh, Peter saying, we are to proclaim the glories Proclaim the glories of God. You know, what's man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The two grand biblical responses to grace. To glorify God, proclaim His excellencies in the world, and to be filled with joyful, thankful hearts for what God has done for us in Jesus. So to review, we've seen in the book of Esther, it's... It is uh, to tell the backstory of the Feast of Purim, but more than that, it's to point us forward to the grand 
overturning of our estates from death to life, from slavery to freedom. And it points us to what we have in Jesus. And you saw two biblical truths to understand our deliverance. One was the invisible hand of God brought about our deliverance. And two, the change of our estate is that of dead men made alive and now seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. And then we saw two biblical ways to celebrate our deliverance. One, by giving thanks to God. And secondly, by proclaiming the glories of God to the world. I started this message with Dunkirk, one of the great illustrations of history where the hidden hand of God delivers people from certain doom and changes the course of history. Well, in Christ, God has forever altered the course of history. And one of the ways that the invisible hand of God works is through people like you and me and through churches like ours to bear witness to grace with hearts of thankfulness and mouths that declare his praise. So some days it looks like these are days of small things, like who, who am I to do anything? Who, who's our little church to do anything? But the hidden hand of God is at work in and through us. And so I charge you, my friends, to devote your lives to thankfulness, and to proclaiming the excellencies of God whenever he gives you opportunity. I pray that you would do that and that together it would be our grand expression and fulfillment of our call to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. May we do that together. Let's pray.